All right, I'm Case Hubbard, and I'm the student pastor here. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, if you want to turn there. Ron is out today at family camp. Luke 5 is where we're going to be. However, before, before I begin to talk there, um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Uh, and from that I take that, that Scripture it teaches us about who God is, it tells us in rebuking us, it tells us how we're broken and where we're broken. Uh, in correcting us, it tells us how to fix that. And then in training, it tells us how to live. And so this last year, as I've continued to develop my theology and develop the usage of Scripture, I found myself falling on three basic questions that Scripture answers. Um, my questions that I've, that I've landed in are who is God, who are we, and how do we respond? And so today we're going to look at our text in, in Luke 4 and 5 and answer these questions as to what Scripture says. We went to Molokai, Hawaii a few weeks ago. I took nine students and eight adults. When you do a mission trip, typically you will take a large group of students and a small group of adults unless you go to Hawaii. And then you will usually take a one-to-one ratio, if not more adults than students. The first time we did it, we actually took more adults than we did students, but this time we were a little closer to even, and our students outnumbered our adults by one, technically, Uh, except what, you know, me being there is not really encouraging for anybody that's an adult. I'm more of a hassle. Enough about me. Let's talk about scripture. Uh, While we were there, we ran a kid's camp. We stayed on, on the beach and lived in tents and shared Jesus with kids. On the back half of that trip, however, we finished Friday morning, and so Friday we got up, we went, we surfed and snorkeled, and actually we didn't surf because Molokai, the waves are terrible in the summer, so we didn't surf, but we tried. Uh, we snorkeled, and then the next day we got up and we did some sightseeing before we flew out, and we went up onto an overlook that overlooks a peninsula. I would tell you the name, but it's in Hawaiian, and I'm from Amarillo, and it doesn't come out well, so just it's a peninsula on the island of Molokai, and it's where the leper colony is and was active uh, for a couple hundred years, and now it's kind of on the, on the downhill slope, obviously, because leprosy is no longer a problem. There are a few who are still living there. But regardless, we're on this outlook and we're overlooking this peninsula. And then we moved from there and walked down a trail. And as we walked down the trail, we got to a massive rock. And this rock uh, is actually called the Phallic Rock. It has a Hawaiian name. I won't tell you what it is, obviously, because I can't say it. And then if I did tell you, I'd have to explain it. And there are kids here. It is a idol or a monument to the fertility god in Molokai. And so let your imagination run wild if you'd like. Uh, look it up and you will see it, whatever. So regardless, but the the story behind this and the belief behind this of the Hawaiians is that if you come make an offering here, if you touch the rock, people actually sleep on this thing who can't have kids will go and worship at this idol trying to get pregnant. And we actually, while we were standing there, while 17 years were standing there hearing the story that our guide was telling us, there was a, a couple who were just down the trail who had a baby who actually said, they held up their baby and said, this worked for us. And I read a couple articles. I, was, I couldn't remember the name of the rock. And so yesterday I was, uh, just went online and Googled, um, and it came up, the fertility rock, uh, or the, the phallic rock. And I read the articles, and there were different people who, were, who had done blogs. They had visited Molokai. Uh, one actually had stated... My wife and I got pregnant because I went and touched this rock. And another guy, and these people aren't Hawaiian. They didn't grow up in, in Hawaii with tradition or this belief coming down from families or generations. But they were just people from the mainland who'd gone over and gone and looked at this and decided they had a spiritual experience. And the problem is today 
is we don't always come to Scripture for our answers. The answers of who is God, who are we, and how do we respond. For the answers to things that are spiritual, we don't come back to Scripture for sometimes. And we look at circumstances, we look at situations, we ask other people. We, we watch who's popular on TV, or we catch it on YouTube, or on a Twitter, or wherever, and that's where we're getting our answers. And when we do that, we turn around and we look, and we have people who bring, literally, are flying over and bringing objects of worship to a rock to be praying. And we walked up there. There were coins and there are flowers and there are shells that were offered on this thing three weeks ago. I'd never actually seen that physically taking place, but it was um, not only a shock, but a, a surreal moment to stand and look and see that there are people who are still grasped by and, and held on to things that are untrue. It, we'll actually come back to that in a minute, but... So, today we're going to focus in on Scripture and what does God's Word say? What does the Bible say about these questions? We're going to pick up in chapter 4 of Luke. And in verse 14, and Luke writes, Luke was uh, believed to be a Gentile, um, converted to be a Christian, was a partner with Paul in ministry. Uh, Paul states that he's a doctor, so he's a well-educated man, calls him a physician. He is one who writes uh, very educatedly in his Greek and sharp guy. And so he writes, and he's writing this account, and basically his story about his story about Jesus. And his argument is to connect Jesus as the Son of God throughout the Gospel. Matthew, we see that that Jesus is connected with the kingdom of God, and Luke takes a little different approach, and he connects him as the Son of God. That's really what he emphasizes. Uh, He also emphasized the work of the Spirit, but today we're going to focus in on who Jesus is. Verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Let's stop there just for one second. He is, Jesus is gone. He's been baptized by John. And Luke actually will state that, that Jesus himself was about 30 years old. And so he's baptized, and then he goes out into the wilderness, and he's there for 40 days, and he's tempted, and he fasts, and he prays. And he comes out of that, and he goes into Galilee, and he begins to teach. And he's teaching in the synagogues, and it says, as he taught, everyone praised him. They encouraged him. Good job. Way to go. He is the new young guy who is teaching, and people like what he's saying. We're going to walk through a progression of how people perceived or responded, or at least how Luke writes this progression of Jesus and his teaching. And to begin with, he says he's teaching in the synagogue, and people liked it. They praised him. In verse 16, he says he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And rolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. And they said, isn't, uh, isn't this Joseph's son? Or they asked, isn't this Joseph's son? And so here we have the next part of the story of Jesus' teaching. He goes to Nazareth. This is where he's grown up. His dad was a carpenter and he learned the family trade as he was going through education process. And he says he comes into the synagogue and he begins to speak to them. And to teach, he reads from the scroll, and then he sits down and he begins to teach about the passage. And he tells them, today I'm fulfilling this scripture. 
this prophecy. I'm here to fulfill this. And it says they, they were amazed at him. Not only did they praise him now, but they're amazed. And it says at the gracious words that were coming off of his lips. They were amazed. They were taken back by this carpenter's son who was speaking with such elegance that drew people to him. So we see this progression that Luke is writing about. First, they were encouraging, praising him. Good job. Next, they're amazed. But he goes on. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you've done in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in that time, in the time of Elijah the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And in verse 20 it says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. So Jesus reads, the passage he read was a quote from Isaiah. If you want to turn there, you can. It's Isaiah 61. When I get there, I'm going to start reading. So if you're not there, I apologize. I'm going to read the quote again, but then I'm going to finish it. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the freedom of the captives for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that's where Jesus stops. The rest of the passage reads, And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. If you don't know what Zion is, it's a reference to Jerusalem. And so here we have Jesus' reading in the synagogue of Nazareth to people. He reads Isaiah 61. And then he steps down and he tells them, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. I'm going to do what this says. The folks in the audience would have been able to recognize the rest of that passage. They would have been familiar with and known. And their automatic connection would have been with the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. Their automatic connection would have been, this guy is coming to bring vengeance and justice upon our oppressors. He's coming to fix what's wrong, to reestablish our nation, our kingdom. And to destroy those who have oppressed us. And they're excited about this. And Jesus stops them and says, No, you're wrong. In fact, you're not going to like me. Because let me tell you who you are. And as he does so, he gives them two examples. And he tells them about Elijah and Elijah. The people in the time of Elijah had prostituted themselves in worship to Baal and Asherah. And Elijah was a prophet who was sent to tell them they were wrong. He was the one who, who came in and challenged 450 prophets of Baal to set up their altars and, and kill their bulls, I think it was, and to call down fire from heaven. And whoever's God did it won. Elijah came and did that, called down fire. God burns it up and they kill 450 prophets. And then Elijah... During his time, they were no longer worshiping Baal and Asherah, but they were still ungodly, as, as we read in, in 1 Kings. It just describes the, the people of that time, or at least the kings and how they, they lived and led the people. And so Jesus makes this connection for them. After he said, and after they, they think this guy's coming to rescue, to save us, to reestablish, to fix what is broken. 
He says, no, you're confused. You're broken. You're wrong. You were ungodly. And they respond and says they're furious. They got up and drove him out of the town. For the, uh, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So Jesus, I want to describe Jesus at this point as offensively attractive in his speaking. We've seen the progression that they praise him. Good job. We like you. To, we're amazed by what you were saying and the way that you're saying it. And all of a sudden, as he begins to explain further to them the message that's founded in truth, they are furious and enraged at his existence. And they want to kill him. And so they grab him and they take him out of town and they're ready to throw him off a cliff. And then Luke, as I said before, is describing as he goes through this account, his story about Jesus, according to Luke, is a story that describes Jesus as the Son of God. And we see Jesus in a picture of deity because it says, literally it says, Jesus proceeded through the middle of the crowd. Now, I don't, Nazareth was a small farming town. I'm not sure how many would have showed up to worship that day. I don't know what the regular attendance was. I have no idea the ratio to men to women and small children. I don't know any of those things, uh, and I don't think we can know them. We might be able to. I just didn't find it yet. But it, there was at least a group of people. If you get three people and try to get one guy, you're okay, unless he's a you know Superman guy. Otherwise, you're going to be fine. But you have a crowd of people who attend the synagogue who take this man out to throw him off a cliff and he's able to physically walk through the middle of the crowd untouched and to proceed on his way. And it's not just say, all right, man, I'm out of here, I'll leave. It's a, we are trying to kill you. We're dragging you and we're ready to throw you off a cliff. Like these people were already dead set on what they were doing. And we see Jesus as the Son of God, this connection, because he's able to physically walk through the middle of them. And so we go on, it says in verse 31, Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. It says they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. And so we've gone from the description of his teaching and the response, they praised him, they encouraged him, to their, they were amazed at the way he said things and the way things rolled off his tongue. And then they were angry. But then we move to they were amazed because his message had authority. People are now recognizing more and more this revelation of the showing of who Jesus is is becoming more apparent. Right after that is a story where he heals a man in the synagogue who's possessed by a demon. The demon, as he walks in, the demon recognizes who Jesus is and then he drives him out of the man and, and the man is thrown on the ground by the demon but the man's not harmed and, and they move on. And more than likely, this passage about their maze because his message had authority his authority is proved by what he's about to do, what he actually did, and casting out the demon and the control he had. And so just I want you to notice the progression of they're encouraging, they're praising him, they're amazed, to now they're amazed and they recognize that he has authority. In verse 44 of chapter 4 it says, And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea, or the country's, country of the Jews. And in verse 1 of chapter 5 it says, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake, of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Now this progression of Jesus' teaching has taken us all the way to this point. So far when we see that he's teaching, it's on the Sabbath and it's in a synagogue. And people are responding for the most part fairly positively other than when they tried to throw him off a cliff. But we get to this point and it says Jesus is standing by the lake 
And the crowd is crowding around him and they're listening to the Word of God. Luke is describing Jesus' words now. His speaking. No longer as being praised. No longer as amazing. No longer as authority. But plain and simple, the Word of God. And Jesus is so dynamic that people are now being drawn to Him outside of the synagogue. He's at a lake. We're going to see in a second that it's not on the Sabbath. This is not a normal day of worship, a normal day of education, but a day when people are at work. It said in verse 2, He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. So he got into one of the boats, one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore, and then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So we see that it's a normal work day. We see Simon Peter is there working. He's, he's uh, maybe working with his brother. I'm not sure if he's there or not, but we know James and John are there as well. Typical work day. But people gather around and they're drawn to Jesus now. We saw at the end of chapter 4, we didn't read this, but in the end of chapter 4, Jesus begins to heal people, uh, at least in the story that Luke is telling. He heals Simon's mother-in-law and they're bringing other sick people to him and he's casting out demons and he's, he's doing his ministry. He's proving who he is. But in verse 1, I really want you to emphasize and to highlight the fact that the people crowd around him and begin to listen to God's Word. Again, Luke is arguing that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is another progression in the story that when He speaks, in a minimum, at least Luke is recognizing, if not the people in their perception, that this is the Word of God. This is God now speaking to us, revealing to us. And in Hebrews chapter 1, you don't have to flip there. It's going to be quick. I said that. I'm not going to make it. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It says that in the past, God spoke through the prophets. But in the last days, he is speaking through his son, Jesus. And here we are seeing that. We are seeing people listen to the word of God. We're seeing people listen to God revealing, showing himself, showing who God is to these people. It says he sat down. Uh, after he pushed out, he sat down and began to teach the people. Then he said, when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. So stop here for one second. Peter's a fisherman, which meant that his dad was probably a fisherman, which meant that his dad was probably a fisherman. Um, it's believed that Peter was at least... Uh, middle class fisherman which meant he probably owned the boat he was in and they may have had some people that were working for them we'll talk about boat size in a minute um, the Sea of Galilee was a was a large fishing community and then um, Capernaum where they're at, or actually not Capernaum excuse me the, the lake of Gennesaret is a uh, it's a huge fishing community and that's a that's a large draw but Peter has grown up there he's grown up as a fisherman the guy's probably been fishing since he could walk his dad's probably teaching in this trade um 
he's at least married at this point, so he's got a little bit of age on him. We know from the mother-in-law comment earlier uh, in Jesus healing his mother-in-law, we know that he was married and old enough to do so. And he's working the family business, and he's grown up that way. On the other side, you've got a guy that comes down and gets in a boat and says, hey, push out and let me teach. And then he says, let's go a little deeper, and you drop your nets and catch some fish. The thing is, Jesus is a carpenter. He grew up in Nazareth, which is roughly 80 miles away from where he's at right now. So he probably didn't make regular trips to the lake to go fishing. So I'm going to argue that he's not really going to know where to go to catch fish on this lake. And he tells Peter, put out into the deep water and let down your nets. Peter's perception at this point, I mean, this would be similar to a 17-year-old kid. I'm 29, and I've been a student pastor for almost eight years, which isn't long for a career. I understand that, but in student ministry, it's a lifetime. <laughs> student ministers roll over faster than apartment complex people. And so, it's, I mean, it's a long time to do it. It would be like a 17-year-old kid walking up to me and not asking, not suggesting, but telling me what we needed to do and then me going, got it, and going to do it. However, Peter's had some experience. He's had some exposure to this guy. He's seen him heal his mother-in-law. He had another account where they had a, at least a brief conversation where Andrew had met Jesus and then brought Peter to Jesus or brought Simon and, and Jesus begins to tell him, hey, I'm actually going to call you Peter. I'm going to change your name. I don't know if it was... Maybe it was just to remind him and they wanted to do the whole rock thing, but I will change people's names if I can't remember them, if I meet a kid. And uh, sometimes I'll change their name just for fun. But Jesus had a, actually had a reason. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said any of that. I don't know why I did. Um, what are you talking about? Let's talk about fishing. So he tells him to do this, and Peter responds with, Okay, Master, I will do that. He, he doesn't make a full-blown confession yet of who Jesus is, but he at least makes a recognition and calls him Master uh, and recognizes this guy's special. There's something about him. Not only that, but he does what he says. I mean, the guy's been working all night. He's washed their nets. He's loaned him his boat. And then he says, go work some more. I'm sure, I, well, at least Peter says, we've been working all night. Almost, are you kidding me? But yeah, you said it, we'll do it. So verse 6, it says, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled for their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. I was trying to find out how big these boats were. Um, they were not a two-man kayak or a float tube. That I don't know how many of you guys are fishermen. They have float tubes and you have little flippers and you get the float tube and, go out and you fish. That is not what's being described here. In 1986, they discovered an ancient boat in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the article I read yesterday was one of those... That was is this Jesus's boat or was it Peter's boat? And it was very spiritual, and I'm not really worried about that. But what it did do was tell us basically the size of the boats they had, which was cool. The boats were basically from the framework that they put together. It's about 26 and a half feet long. It's about seven and a half feet wide and about four and a half feet tall. So it's a little bigger than your average ski or wakeboard boat of this day. And these two boats that are this size would hold roughly 15 people. Um, they said the average man was like five five and weighed about 140 pounds, which if you didn't know would make me huge. In 100 B.C. It would be awesome. But instead, I'm here and I'm a Gentile. I'm a mouse among giants. Anyway, um, huge boats, well, not huge boats, but um, 
decent-sized boats, and there are two of them, and there are so many fish that these boats begin to sink. I don't know how many of you guys have had any experience with fishing or, like, large quantities of fish or big fish, but I was watching a YouTube video of a gorilla bass. I don't know if you've heard of that, but they're huge. This guy caught a 500-pound gorilla bass on a rod and reel. And so he's reeling it in. They're in an average bass boat, which is, I don't know, 18, 19 feet long uh, and six, seven feet wide. And they're reeling this thing in. He gets up to the, to the edge of the boat. These two men that are probably 200 pounds each, they both bend over and grab full hands on the bass's lip. Okay, so, I mean, the lip is like this big. And so they grab this lip and they both just hoist this thing. And it's like a deadlift coming up. And so they lift it up and they put it on the back of the boat and they're taking photos. And this fish covers back to back the entire boat. And so they're on the very edge and the one guy that caught him is draped over the gorilla bass and he's hugging him and smiling. And the whole time I'm thinking, dude, that fish is going to flop and he's going to go in the water and he's going to eat you. He didn't, at least during the video, he did not do that. The thing is, though, this is the biggest fish I've ever seen on video and the buoyancy of the boat wasn't affected at all. The boat was totally fine. It was floating. Great. They probably could have loaded a few more of those things on there and the boat would have been fine. And boats are similar in terms of, I think, buoyancy and the makeup and the float capability are probably very similar now as they were then, just in terms of, I mean, boats are boats. And so it's enough weight, there are enough fish that it is sinking the two boats. All off of the advice of a carpenter turned rabbi who's now teaching God's word. But if we remember Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1 where he said Jesus is the creator and sustainer of life. Again, this is Luke describing the divinity of Jesus. He made them. He knows where he put them. He knows where to go catch them. So the boats are sinking. It says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter has now come from saying, Master, I'll do what you say, to referring to Jesus as Lord, falling on his knees and begging for him to leave his presence. It's much like Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision. Isaiah is called um, into further ministry. And during that, during that vision, he sees the Lord and he says, he responds with, Woe am I, I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. I have seen God. Isaiah is terrified because he's seen God and he recognizes who God is. He recognizes the fact that God is God and he's not. And he's broken and he's terrified. God responds to Isaiah graciously. He heals him. He sends a, I mean, saw a vision, but he sends an angel with a coal that's burning and touches his lips and purifies, corrects, fixes him, and then he uses him for ministry. Peter's in much the same spot, or Simon's in much the same spot. He falls on his knees and recognizes, Lord, go away from me. I am a sinful man. He's recognizing, he's realizing, God is revealing to him, this is the Son of God. And Peter is terrified because he's broken. Again, if we're asking the questions, who is God? We see throughout the Gospel of Luke as he's presenting this case and making an apology for Christ that Jesus is God. Not only does he answer that for us, but he answers who we are with Peter's response. We're broken. When we get to that point of recognizing, realizing who Jesus is, 
It reveals to us that we're broken, that we're wrong, that we're incorrect. And in verse 9 it says, For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of the fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the son of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up to shore and left everything and followed him. And so they have this encounter with Jesus that leads them to the point where Peter recognizes at least fuller now who Jesus is to the point where he falls on his face and says, Go away from me, Lord. I am sinful. I am in need of fixing. And it says, Jesus responds with, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. Jesus responds to Peter's request, Peter's cry of, I am broken, to redemption, to fixing, to I'm going to use you to be a part of what I'm doing with mankind. There are two other accounts of this story in in Matthew and Mark, and both of those, Jesus, they're abbreviated in terms of comparison to this one, but Jesus comes up and he calls them and says, come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Most of you are probably familiar with that. And they leave their boats, they leave their nets, John and James leave their father and they follow Jesus. And this is a, a closer look at the story and they have we see a bigger picture of the encounter and the recognition and revelation to them of who Jesus is. But they recognize I'm sinful. Jesus responds with, Don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men and then Jesus calls them to do something specific. I think one of the encouraging things I see from this passage is God's specific call on the lives of men to serve Him. And through ministry and through just life in general and talking to people who know Jesus, who are wanting to seek God, and that sometimes we get caught up and we get either scared or confused about what God wants to do with us. And we feel like we need to seek that out and begin to ask, what does God want to do with us? And a lot of times we'll spend months or years praying and seeking in Scripture of, God, what do you want me to do with my life? I think the encouraging thing here and what I've seen through Scripture as a basic framework is that when God wants you to do something specific, He's going to tell you. You're not going to miss it. It doesn't mean that you're going to get it done. You still have to respond. But when God wants you to know something, when God wants you to go somewhere, He's going to tell you and you're going to know. His call on Peter and James and John is very specific. If we walk through our Bible, we see that plainly. He calls Abram to move, and it's specific. He calls Samuel when he's a boy living uh, with Eli. He calls him to ministry. David is very specific. Samuel comes and anoints him and says, you're going to be the next king. Isaiah is called specifically. Jonah, we see that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says what? Get up. Go to Nineveh. Specific. Peter, James, and John we just discussed. Matthew was at a text collector booth. And he walks up and he says, hey, follow me. Paul, the same way on the road to Damascus. He stopped in the middle of what he's doing. And God says, I'm going to show you what you're going to do. And God shows him. He does the same with Mary. He reveals to Mary, you're going to have Jesus. He did the same with John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, and said, this is what's going to happen. God isn't going to allow you to miss what he has for you. Some of us may not have something huge, dynamic, and specific. 
If we go and we look at Matthew 28, the end of Jesus' ministry here on earth, as he's sharing with the disciples, this is your mission, this is what you're going to do. He tells them, go out and tell people about me and teach them how to live. That is a mission for all of us. It's a mission for where you're at to reach out to those who are around you. You don't have to ask. You don't have to look. You don't have to pray about. He's already told you. Again, I think the encouraging thing is when there's something specific, God's going to let you know. I see that a lot with moving churches or moving wherever in conversations. I feel like the Lord led me to do this. I feel like He led me to do this. Ministers are terrible about it. When we leave churches and go take another job, you know who we blame? Jesus. God called me. i got to go. I don't have a choice. When the reality is, they're actually going to pay me more. Um, the setup's a little nicer, and I'm going to have a bigger house. I'm trying to be honest. I'm just telling you. So, if I ever go anywhere, I'm going to walk up here and I'm going to say, Listen, guys, they're going to pay me more. Setup's going to be better. I'm going to have a bigger house. Sort of a joke. <laughs> Anyways, that's a side note, just the encouragement. The, the real thing that we're getting at today, though, Luke is writing to connect Jesus as the Son of God. He answers our questions through the passages we looked at. Who is God? God is Jesus. Luke is very plain about that. Scripture is very plain. If we always come back to God's Word for that answer, that's what we're going to find. Regardless of our situation, our circumstances, what happens in life, with family, with people around us, our jobs, whatever's going on. If we come back to Scripture, we find that Jesus is God. The question of who are we, if we come back to Scripture to find our answer, is that we're broken. It also says that we're God's creation. He loves us, but it says we are broken. That's not the message that's communicated today in our culture. The creator of, I think, Twitter, I don't even know his name, did an interview a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and was discussing Twitter and the positive effects of it. And he said basically that man is good, and this whole Twitter thing is just going to improve us. Technology, the widespread communication throughout our world, just, it just makes us better. And if you have a... Facebook or a MySpace and just look at the ads on those things, aligning it with God's Word, you can see plainly that we're not good. We're broken. Widespread communication has caused bullying and beatings and different things in high schools. We have YouTube and we have the group in Florida, the group of cheerleaders that ganged up on one girl and just beat the snot out of her and put it on video because they wanted to have a top-rated video. If we listen to culture and don't listen to Scripture, we learn that man's good. The problem is that's wrong. And when God reveals Himself to us, and through God's Word we see, just as Peter did, I'm sinful, I'm broken, I need fixing. It says, how do we respond? Jesus responded with, don't be afraid. I'm going to use you. Don't be afraid. I love you. He brings her out restoration. He brings about healing, fixing, aligning again with God. Our response is to recognize who Jesus is and to recognize the fact that we're broken. Coming to know Jesus is a almost a two-part mental recognition. Obviously, it's a heart thing, but just there are 
it's more than just I believe who Jesus is. We see in in chapter four we talked about the demon that was cast out, who recognizes who Jesus is. He recognizes who he is by name, his origin, his power, his authority, and he runs from him. However, he doesn't find redemption from God in that recognition. He verbally says it. And he doesn't find salvation, correction, forgiveness. He doesn't find grace. Because he doesn't recognize the fact that he's broken. Isaiah, Peter, both recognize the fact that we're broken. To know God, you have to recognize I'm broken and I need to be fixed. And that has to happen through Jesus. And the emphasis today, again, is to, one, drawing ourselves back to God's Word for our answers. When we do that, we ground ourselves in truth. We ground ourselves in what's right, what's stable, what's consistent, that what doesn't change. When we don't listen to society, culture, TV, whoever. And we find authority in God's Word. Just as those in Capernaum were amazed at his teaching and they, they recognized his authority. When we base our beliefs, our answer to who is God, who are we, how do we respond out of Scripture, it has authority. It's real. We're not clinging to a monumental rock wanting to get pregnant and clinging to hopelessness in darkness. But instead, we get to know God, have a relationship with Him, and find forgiveness. The main thing I want to ask you today is, are you at that point? Have you recognized that? Have you recognized the fact that you're broken and recognized that Jesus is the Son of God and the way to know God? I'm going to pray and worship team will come and close us out. Dear God, I come to you now. Thank you for today. I thank you for another chance to come and to worship you, to read from your word and to learn from your word. Thank you for life. Thank you for forgiveness. Um, the fact that you love me, that you love us. Yeah, I would pray for this week as we all go out, pray for opportunities to share you with our friends, family, and those that don't know you. And thank you for who you are and your love. In your precious name we pray. Amen.